From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Precision medicine is a new approach to disease treatment and prevention. Using biological samples, genetic data, and lifestyle information, researchers look to develop more precise treatments for many diseases and conditions. We'll hear from the doctor leading the U.S. Precision Medicine Initiative. When we asked people in our survey, sort of, what do you think about the value of participation? They said, I would want to learn about myself. I would want to contribute to generalizable knowledge. We'll also hear a first-hand precision medicine story, how having her genome sequence improved one woman's prognosis. Also on the program, treatment for peripheral artery disease and the growing problem of concussions in youth sports. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 2015, during the State of the Union Address, President Barack Obama launched the Precision Medicine Initiative. The goal is to have one million or more U.S. research participants who will share biological samples, genetic data, and lifestyle information with researchers in an effort to develop more precise treatments for many diseases and conditions. In May of 2016, Mayo Clinic was awarded $142 million in funding by the National Institutes of Health to serve as the National Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program Biobank. Dr. Kathy Hudson is the Deputy Director for Science, Outreach, and Policy at NIH, and she's leading the planning and creation of the Nationwide Precision Medicine Initiative. Dr. Hudson, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. When the president talked about precision medicine in the State of the Union address, it was a new awareness for a lot of people, including politicians. Would that be fair to say? It is, and and we have been uh, really excited that the Congress, who's money we will need to actually support this program, including the Mayo Clinic Biobank, is really enthusiastic. And they're enthusiastic in a way that crosses party lines and crosses uh, Capitol Hill. So House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans, really supportive of this project as we're getting it launched. So if I was a, a person sitting at home listening to this, what exactly does Precision Medicine Initiative cohort mean to me uh, moving forward? So we are not yet accepting volunteers into the program. We hope to launch this winter or spring. And when we launch, we'll have a national campaign that will really explain what the motivation and the contribution that individuals can make by participating in this program. So we'll want people to enroll, provide information about themselves, uh, be able to get somewhere where they can uh, get a baseline health exam, provide biological specimens, and also be able to provide an electronic medical record if they have one available. There already is a biobank that's up and running here at Mayo Clinic. Is it going the national biobank going to be similar to what we have here in Rochester? Yes. So we really are building on the expertise uh, and infrastructure that you already have here and are adding to it. So there's going to be new construction in order to accommodate the number of specimens here. So if you think about a million people and we're getting multiple tubes of blood plus urine, and then there will be the collection at the time that people sign up, but then there'll be additional collections over time because it'll be the longitudinal changes and biomarkers and other things that will be interesting. So when fully operational, I'm pretty sure this is going to be the biggest biobank in the world. 
So when you mention biomarkers, what, what do you mean by biomarkers? What analysis will be done on those specimens is to be determined, mm -hmm. but one of the real values that was expected when we were in the early planning phases is that we would be able to do genetic and biochemical analysis on uh, by, by the biological specimens and be able to find correlations between um, health outcomes. So if you have samples from people, electronic medical records, and their own information for many years, and then they develop a disease, you'll be able to take people like that and really be able to, de to detect what are the early molecular and chemical changes that are happening in those people um, that later result in the onset of disease. I think folks might, uh, if this is the first time they're hearing about this, uh, they're probably thinking, I'm not sure I want people nosing around in my genome. Why should uh, people want to be part of this? We did a survey about a year ago and asked a representative sample of people with a good representation across all demographic groups. We told them about the study. We asked if they thought it sh should be supported, and overwhelmingly people said, yeah, this should be done. This is something appropriate for our country to do. And then we asked, would you be interested in participating? And a modest majority said that they would be interested in participating. Most interestingly, it did not vary across racial hmm. or ethnic groups. It was high amongst all of them. Uh, the variability came with um, age, actually. So older Americans were less likely to say that they would participate, maybe keeping in mind that it might be hard for them to be able to participate. And so we hope to be able to address that concern as, as we move forward. So in terms of will people be concerned about what kinds of information will be generated and who's nosing around in their medical information, not just their genome, but other health-related information and lifestyle information, there will be some people who will be so worried about that that they won't sign up, and they shouldn't. The wholesome number of people to participate, I think we will have no problem in achieving. But we will want to tell people that their private information, their identifiable information will be very strictly controlled, and that what they get back is information that we learn about them and about the cohort in an ongoing way, so they can sort of uh, choose their own adventure. They can, they can select how much information they want flowing back to them. And we hope that they will give us insight as we go about what kinds of science and what kind of analysis they would like to see happen. When we asked people in our survey, sort of, what do you think about the value of participation? They said, I would want to learn about myself. I would want to contribute to generalizable knowledge. Uh, and then, you know, some people said that they would want other things. We offered a whole list of things, but nothing met the getting information about myself was the biggest motivation for people. No, I think this is fascinating. I was very excited when the president launched its initiative. For example, in, in orthopedic surgery, we, we can have the same condition treated by the same surgeon in two different patients and have very different outcomes. And so there, in certain conditions, there are factors that the patients have that we still don't quite understand. For example, why may somebody form scarring mm -hmm. and the other doesn't? And if there's something we could do preoperatively, for example, to prevent that from happening, I think is an amazing thing to do. Right. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Well, we'll look forward to speaking with you again. Hopefully you can come back and uh, brief us again. Great. Thanks a lot. We've been talking about Precision Medicine Initiative with Dr. Kathy Hudson from the NIH. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Hudson. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get a first-hand account of Precision Medicine, how sequencing the genome improved one patient's treatment. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 1996, Kathy Juste was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a rare form of blood cancer. With no proven treatments at the time for multiple myeloma, she was told by her doctor, you have three years at best. A pharmaceutical executive and a mother of a young child, Kathy refused to accept the prognosis. When she was diagnosed, no new treatments had been developed for decades. Given this, Ms. Juste founded the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation with the hopes of accelerating the research and individualizing treatments. And you know what? It worked. It did. Now, 20 years later, she's a patient advocate and speaker on the topic of precision medicine. Ms. Juste is in Rochester to speak at the Individualizing Medicine Conference being held by the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine. We are very pleased to have her here on Mayo Clinic Radio. Ms. Juste, welcome to the program. We're so glad to meet you. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. You get to be a spokesperson now, an advocate. I know, 20 years later. Who would have dreamed? And to hear you have three years and now for 20 years, even just explain what that feels like. Well, I think in myeloma, the days were dark when I was first diagnosed. I mean, I remember being a pharmaceutical executive and going back and looking into the pipeline and thinking, it's true, like three years at best is, is what it's going to be. And I think for me, I felt... If I could just jumpstart the research, that would be fine. If I could extend my life long enough that maybe my one-year-old would turn five and she might just have some remembrance of me, that would be phenomenal. But we were really fortunate in the myeloma space to have a great community of doctors and people that got together and said, we have to make a difference. And as we started bringing the researchers in and we started funding them and moving science forward and then working with the drug companies, it all started to pan out. And, you know, three years became five and five became seven. And, you know, you kept at it because you were seeing the progress. And um, we're lucky. We had great doctors and patients all working together. Well, Miss Justy, I'm lucky. I can see you and you, you look magnificent. And so <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. But tell us how that journey evolved mm. from being a patient and having a subjective awareness to having the ob- objectivity of being an advocate. Mm-hmm. I was lucky. If you think about it, you know, I, I was a patient, but my whole background had been in science and business. I was a undergrad pre-med major who was accepted in medical school. I didn't decide to go. I went to work for Merck instead, deferred. And when I was at Merck, I did sales and then went into headquarters. I was like, this looks like a really great place for me to work. I feel like I could make a difference here. Then went on to business school and um, you know, that all led me to a place where I said, this is, this is my background. This is what I do, business and science. And it never dawned on me that I was running a nonprofit or I was an advocate. I was really a woman who was on a mission to find new treatments for a disease that desperately needed them. And I was focused on generating new models that would solve the problem. We were just uh, speaking about the the president saying we have to continue looking at the genome and the biobank, a national biobank. And we were learning about that from Dr. Hudson. You have had your genome sequenced. So obviously that was not 20 years ago. When was it that you had your genome sequenced? Well, this is an interesting story and important for, for everybody to understand. There's there's two levels of sequencing. So one is your tumor and one is your germline. And for me, what's interesting is when I was really going into active disease and they were doing my genomics, we weren't doing, people weren't doing sequencing back then. I did a lot of gene expression profiling, whatever kind of genomics they could do on me, they were doing. So I had all of that data 
data. But then I did a stem cell transplant with my sister, and I ended up going into a complete remission, which means you don't have tumor cells for people to sequence. I then later on decided when my um, twin sister got breast cancer, my mom has melanoma, my father died of kidney cancer, and um, you know I just thought it was really strange that two identical twins got two different cancers. My sister got stage three breast cancer, I had myeloma, but our grandfather had myeloma and our grandmother had breast cancer. And so our family decided that we would all work with Keith Stewart at the Mayo Clinic and the Individualized Medicine Program so that whatever we could do to find out more about gene variants that we were contributing as a family. And then we did that piece for the Wall Street Journal to communicate that. Ah, yes. And what did you learn when you all had your genome sequenced? I learned family members are all really different in how much they want to know and how much they want to be involved. Um, Each family member was was completely different. My mom was gung-ho at 86 that she couldn't wait to get this done because if anything was running in our family, she wanted to fix it. My identical twin is an attorney, so a little more of a a skeptic. And my son, who I had after my daughter... um, He's a Division One baseball player. He couldn't wait to get this done because, and I realized it's because he always looks at stats. Like he wants to know, is it a lefty, righty batter? What's their hitting average? So for him, this was just more data and knowledge. And so he was gung-ho. So I learned that um, from behaviors really interesting when you're doing genomes and you have to be thoughtful about that. But um, in terms of my own care, what was really interesting, and, and Keith Stewart was amazing, um, With my sister having breast cancer, the discussion was, if an identical twin has it, the odds of me getting are very high. So Keith said, um, you've got to get to a a specialized breast cancer surgeon. I did that. I went to meet with her. Um, They were going to put me on prophylactic care for breast cancer. But when they went back in and looked at all of my genomic information, they decided I really wasn't at risk. Um, that, that I absolutely should be followed very carefully. They changed my, my plan, but they decided not to put me on treatment. And I think this is what's important is we all do this work thinking we're going to find out the worst. So a lot of times it's not the worst. You find out good things, and it really allows you to plan your life much better. And I think that's what we all have to hope for. So I'm, I'm a big fan of learning everything you can know, getting that knowledge, and adjusting your life as you need to. So with that uh, information to hand, and you founded the Multiple uh, Myeloma Research Foundation, what is the mission of that uh, organization? So the mission of the MMRF was always to um, drive drug development and find new treatments to extend the lives of the patients that we serve. Over time, however, the MMRF has also launched what we call the COMPASS study, which was where we started sequencing 1,000 patients at that critical moment of diagnosis before they started treatment. We then follow them through their entire journey, which is, you know, years and years. When they relapse, we sequence them again, and we follow all their clinical data as well. So it's now the largest genomic data set of any cancer in the world because we did all deep sequencing, clinical, anything, you name it, we put in. What was important about it was 100 centers, including Mayo, participated in the study with us. But in order to participate, you had to give up IP. Um, all data went into the public domain. So anything that anybody ever wants to see on our COMPASS trial is sitting in the public domain. And as a result of that, anybody can do the analytics. So we, we do hire companies like uh, GNS, which is in, in Boston, to study the analytics and the algorithms of how 
you know, the pathways move in myeloma, but there's many other companies that can come in and, and work on that with us. Then we take all that knowledge and we drive it to the clinic. At the MMRF, we have a 22-center um, consortium that we run out of our offices, and those 22 centers have now done 70 phase one and two clinical trials with us um, for 35 different drugs, and we have 20 more trials going on right now. You're in a unique position that you worked for the drug company, you're diagnosed with a cancer that you have overcome, and now you're interested in the genome of it. So the business relationship of what the drug companies have in this, and everybody wants to say the evil drug companies, but how do you see that relationship progressing? I think you have to be um, very aware of the word portfolio. So, you know, for our company, we constantly do business development. And the focus for us is what are the absolute best technologies and drugs that our patients are going to need? It could be a teeny tiny immunotherapy startup. It it could be T-cell. It could be anything. So we have to constantly evaluate our portfolio to support the drugs we need. We also then have to get into the appropriate business models with these groups to say, you know, if you're using our data or things are happening, how do we do it? Is it subscription models? Is it a pre-competitive consortium? At the end of the day, we are very aware, though, um, at the MMRF, 30% of our funding comes in from events, labor-intensive to do, but important. Over 30% comes in from donations and, um, and donors. And then the other 30 comes in from all corporations. They can be just corporations that love what we do. They can be direct-to-consumer. They could also be pharma that pays a lot for our health care. And there are situations where, yeah, we risk share on a trial, but we also make sure that um, we raise our money as carefully as we spend our money so that we never, ever feel beholden to anybody except our patients. So obviously you know you're being in the industry. There's a long lead time between drug inception and being available to the public. How far are you along in that with the uh, development of the foundation? I think what we've done is we've cut the time dramatically in how long it takes. Think about it. We usually, you know, when we started, you know, 10 years to get one drug to market, in multiple myeloma, we've had 10 drugs approved in the last 10 years, wow. 10. And, you know, we've, we've increased five years survival by 40%. And while I was told I would live three years and there was no reason to deny that, now the average is nine. So we've tripled the lifespan. So it's it's interesting, this teeny tiny cancer, you know, has had made such unbelievably great strides thanks to a community that works together. We write the business plan and the scientific plan and we raise the money and de-risk with everybody, but we couldn't do what we do without great academic centers, community centers, and, and industry working with us. Oh, but and great thanks to you. I mean, what a position that you are in. I'm I'm very pleased to have been able to meet you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We've Thank been you. talking about individualized medicine and the role of the patient with patient advocate and founder of the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, Ms. Kathy Juicy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the common circulatory condition known as peripheral artery disease. And later on on the show, we'll discuss the growing problem of concussions in youth sports. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The next time you're around young children, watch how they move. 
They squat, crawl, jump, and run with ease. Experts in the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program want adults to learn from those kids. They say many adults forget how to move because they're always sitting behind a desk or simply not moving. I think one of the most dangerous things that we do every day is sit all day, every day. Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program's Danny Johnson says inactivity makes your body forget how to move, making it harder to do things and increasing your risk of injury. If you drop something on the floor, can you get down and pick it up? Without hurting yourself. So Danny and her team developed a class called the Elements of Movement. It's basically designed around what we refer to as natural movements or fundamentals of movement. Movements such as balancing to prevent falls, lifting weighted balls so you can put your luggage in the overhead bin, or squatting so you can reach your keys on the floor and get up again. Really uh, managing your environment with confidence. Spend time getting down on the floor. Take the stairs two at a time or do a squat in your office chair. It's about getting back to basic movements we could do as kids, but movements we forget how to do as we age. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayor Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Peripheral artery disease is a common circulatory problem in which narrowed arteries reduce blood flow to your limbs. When you develop peripheral artery disease, or PAD, your extremities, usually your legs, don't receive enough blood flow to keep up with demand. This causes symptoms, most notably leg pain when walking, and this is called claudication. Holy smokes, that's a big word. PAD is also likely to be a sign of a more widespread accumulation of fatty deposits in your arteries known as atherosclerosis. Here to discuss peripheral artery disease is Mayo Clinic vascular surgeon Dr. Randall DiMartino. Nice to meet you, Dr. DiMartino. Hi, good morning. I just read this, I know, but what exactly is PAD? So yeah, peripheral arterial disease, sometimes people say peripheral vascular disease, PVD, PAD. There's a little bit of alphabet soup there, but for the most part, some blockages of arteries that go to the legs. So the arteries are responsible for bringing the blood flow down from the heart to the legs to meet up with demands for your muscle use for walking. And if you have blockages, you get impairment of being able to keep up with that demand. You can get cramps just like if you were to go for a run and get a cramp in your side because of low oxygen. You get a cramp in your legs because your blood flow can't keep up and bring the oxygen it needs to your calves or thighs or sometimes even buttocks, depending on where your blockages are. It can cause symptoms in different areas. Wait a minute, is that a Charlie horse? Is it the same thing as that or is this a different deal altogether? Different, but sometimes people will sort of describe it that way because that's what (laughs) they know of being a kid and having a cramp come on and and then it goes away and they say, you know, I get a Charlie horse or something of that nature, but it is a different problem. Okay. Uh, But some people just know that and they may describe it that way. If someone is having Charlie horses and they think, oh, I'm just having Charlie horses, is that something that they should say, well, maybe this is PAD? Typically, patients will describe you know, walking at various distances, but usually for that one person, it might be the same or similar distance each time causes them to need to stop. Mm. Sometimes referred to as a window gazer's disease where patients may walk, you know, down down the street. They stop and gaze at a window for a few minutes because their legs are cramping them. They, they wait a few minutes, the blood flow catches up, and then they continue walking. It's just a way of sort of subtly not letting anybody realize that you have a problem. But most people will report that exact same phenomenon of, uh, I walk for a little while, my calves tighten up. I need to rest for a moment or two, sometimes a minute and sometimes even longer, but then I'm able to continue on and walk again that same distance and then it happens again. It seems to me we've heard about angina, which is like cramp in the heart. Is this the equivalent thing in the legs? 
very much uh, similar. It's uh, except you don't have the same consequences. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you can't. You don't have a heart attack of the legs, uh, sure. so to speak. But it's a similar problem in terms of you know uh, blockages of the heart not meeting, causing a demand supply mismatch of blood flow to the legs. What are the risk factors? So it's it's similar to uh, heart disease in that. You know, this is uh, peripheral vascular disease or atherosclerosis in general is a systemic problem. So it can happen in the heart just like it can happen in the legs and vice versa. So patients who have it have similar risk factors and they can be at risk for heart disease as well. But things like having high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, history of smoking, and then things that you can't change such as advanced age, being male, are things that are more common for patients who have peripheral arterial disease. So are there any, so for heart disease, there are medications one can take. What about for peripheral vascular disease? Are there any medications, for example, an aspirin or a statin that we hear about these days? So when we meet a patient who has peripheral arterial disease, one of the most important things to pay attention to is what their uh, lifestyle is like at the moment and what their medication profile is like. Typically, one of the first things we'll talk to patients about is uh, if they're smoking, they should stop smoking. If they're uh, on an asp- if they're not on an aspirin, they should be on an aspirin, mostly because of the the benefit of reducing the risk of heart attack or strokes in the future. Because we know that they have blockages elsewhere in their body if they have blockages mm-hmm. in their legs. Uh, and statins are also effective therapy in terms of reducing cholesterol, stabilizing plaques in various territories of the body, and are part of that. And then walking programs are usually instituted to help people sort of achieve uh, better walking over time as first-line therapy, but sort of the, f- the first approach to peripheral arterial disease has to address all of these things, including medical uh, therapy as well as their habits and, and other factors that can reduce the risk of progression. You mentioned the cramping in the legs or the window gazers, walking pattern. Are there other symptoms or signs that people could, that could tip them off? Patients who have very advanced disease, meaning they may have not even paid attention to some of these signs for a long time, can get into a different area of peripheral arterial disease we term critical limb ischemia. That's where actually the blockages are usually at multiple levels of of, uh, the body and can actually start to impair your ability to heal wounds or cause pain just because the blood flow is so poor. And those are very much a separate group and they have different treatment uh, patterns uh, because it's a more dire circumstance than those with just claudication. You know, Tracy, I find this extremely interesting because uh, most of us think hip and knee problems and back problems causing leg pain, but obviously you're telling us about peripheral arterial disease. How do you tell the difference if it's, for example, coming from the spine and I have sciatica? Is that the same thing? So it can be tough to tease the two uh, apart. Sometimes nerve discomforts or spinal stenosis can mimic uh, peripheral arterial disease, it uh, it can be called spinal, uh, you know, uh, neurogenic claudication, mm-hmm. can be, which is uh, just a twist on the word claudication we use for referring to the arterial circulation. There's that big word again, Tracy. Yeah, <laughs> it's tricky, very uh, tricky. <laughs> the uh, the best one of the best ways to help figure that out can just be the history. You know, people who have spinal stenosis, oftentimes they feel better when they sit down, lean forward, they open up the spinal foramina where the nerves come out and that relieves their symptoms. Patients with peripheral arterial disease may not need to sit. They can just stand for a few minutes and their symptoms will go away. So sometimes just talking to the patient about how uh, their symptoms are. Otherwise, they may need more invasive uh, testing in terms of an MRI to look uh, at the spine. But uh, oftentimes just a history can help figure that out. And we often do non-invasive tests, which are 
basically blood pressures of the legs that can sort of help figure out if somebody has peripheral arterial disease. That's sort of the first-line test to check. I understand that you have been doing some research on the different treatment options. So first let's talk about what's the regular course of treatment uh, that you would have if someone has PAD. So the first thing is most people have mild PAD. It's very few people that get to that and that more critical stage that I discussed. But the first thing is really being on the right medication regimens and stopping smoking. And the medication regimens really being uh, statin therapy, aspirin therapy, and sometimes being okay. on an ACE inhibitor. Okay. Unfortunately, not everybody gets on that. Only about maybe 40 to 60% of Americans with PAD are estimated to be on the right medications. And so it may be that they're not diagnosed. It may be that it's not recognized how beneficial these medications can be in reducing heart attack or stroke or progression of their peripheral arterial disease. And so getting on them is really, really key. So, yeah, we've looked at various settings where patients uh, 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 with peripheral arterial disease, even those being treated with surgery, aren't always on these medications. And so efforts are underway to help improve that. Is that your area of research? It is sort of the delivery of care is what I'm interested in, so identifying practice patterns, areas where we can we know things are effective and how can we make sure that we're getting effective care to patients uh, who need them. It doesn't seem like in this day and age that uh, something being underdiagnosed is the problem, but is PAD underdiagnosed? Is that what I'm understanding? It's interesting. There's uh, There's been a lot of debate in the past about whether or not to screen for PAD as a surrogate for cardiac disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think the recommendations come very uh, strongly for that, but um, it, it's it's something for people to sort of recognize and bring up with their providers if they notice it, but it's not widely uh, advocated to screen for PAD to find occult cardiac disease. Now, Dr. DiMartino, can you tell us about the surgical options? Uh, what's changed in the last, say, decade, and how to treat these? Spoken like a true surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the past uh, probably 15 to 20 years has pr- really drastically changed the surgical treatment of PAD. So uh, whereas once medical therapy and walking programs are not helpful or fail or, or don't improve symptoms, uh, surgical therapy can help relieve symptoms by actually uh, reinstituting better circulation to the extremities, either through a bypass surgery, which is uh, a more invasive operation of sort of like a bypass for the heart. We take a vein and we um, use it to replace an artery. Or more recently, it's been a uh, we call endovascular therapy, which is minimally invasive, where a patient can have a procedure in one day and often go home the same day and have a stent or a balloon used, uh, sometimes a device called an atherectomy device to actually excise plaque out of the artery and uh, reinstitute flow through a blockage and improve the blood flow. Wow. We've been talking about peripheral artery disease with vascular surgeon Dr. Randall DiMartino. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. DiMartino. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about concussions with a pediatric sports medicine expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. On any Saturday morning in towns all across America, you can find them. Kids playing soccer, or what the rest of the world calls football. <laughs> Accord- and, and just in this fall, isn't it your whole life, all year long? It's more important than life. Okay, very case. good. <laughs> According to U.S. Youth Soccer, more than 3 million kids participate in the sport each year. While the activity and exercise is important to kids' health, 
A recent study by the Center for Injury Research and Policy in Columbus, Ohio, that's a mouthful right there, <laughs> revealed that an increasing percentage of youth soccer players are seeking emergency treatment for concussions each year. It's likely that part of the increase is due to greater awareness about concussions and their potential risks, meaning that coaches and parents are seeking emergency treatment for symptoms that in previous years might have been downplayed or overlooked. Here to discuss concussions is Mayo Clinic's Dr. David Soma. He's an expert in pediatric and adolescent sports medicine. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Soma. It's good to see you again. Thank you very much for having me. So soccer uh, is Dr. Kakar's world. <laughs> You're good world. All, all the way around. But is there a difference when it comes to concussions between the youth that play soccer and adults who get a concussion by playing soccer? So there is some data to support that children may be slightly more vulnerable um, to sustaining a concussion than maybe their adult counterparts. Why that is, we don't fully know. Uh, I think that some people hypothesize that um, their brains are still developing. Other people might say that it's because their neck muscles and other things are less mature and able to support the, that. Um, we don't really fully understand that, uh, but I definitely think that they're a little bit more increased risk. And then even when they do get a concussion, the re recovery could potentially be a little bit longer. Now, uh, Dr. Soma, when I came out of the womb, we were playing soccer, yeah. and I, I think I turned out okay, and I yeah. used to enjoy heading the ball. So just just tell me, what, where has this come from? Has this come because of the epidemic that we see in, in football? Is that the reason why it's now transcended in soccer? I think, yeah, it's, it's more than just soccer. I think that all the sports were noticing an increased um, number of concussions. But again, as I think Tracy said, is that because we're having more awareness, or is it actually because the number of concussions are on the rise? Um, I definitely think that, again, football is the one that's most talked about because of its national attention and its popularity. But, you know, the, the rates are actually on the rise in multiple other sports, um, men and women's soccer, uh, basketball. Other sports are even less thought to be related to concussion. Some of the non-contact sports, even tennis, there's, the rates are higher in those as well. So I think there's many things that are at play to help to uh, determine that. One other thing that people talk about is athletes are bigger, stronger, and faster now uh, than they used to be in this are there increased forces being caught, you know, put forth towards these athletes into the ball, um, hitting the heads of individuals, and could that be causing concussion? Possibly, but I think there's, again, multiple factors at play. So whether it's soccer or hockey or football or, like you said, tennis yeah. even, um, just uh, overall discussion about concussion is probably where we're going to end up with this. Yeah. So how is it that someone knows, like you said, we're all trying to be a little bit more aware about it with ourselves and our kids. How do you know when you've suffered a concussion? Yeah, so I think that it takes a couple different things. So first, you have to have some sort of force transmitted to your head. So you can't. It, it may be a blow to the head, or it could be a blow to the body, where there's forces transmitted to your head. And then after that, it's a manifestation of signs and symptoms. So it's relatively obvious for most people that watch sports if the, somebody wobbles off the field or stumbles off the field, or if they're knocked unconscious, that those are obvious concussions. But the majority of concussions do not have loss of consciousness. The majority of them don't have somebody stumbling off the field. So then it really takes a detailed history, of knowing what the patient feels like, doing an exam. Looking for some signs, and then again corresponding that with uh, the story and the injury to see if again there is a sign of an injury. And the way I kind of think of it is that if you get hit in the in the eye, that might cause some eye symptoms. But if you have dizziness, balance problems, or other things that can't be explained by the blow, then that could be a sign of a brain injury, which could be a concussion. And if you do, I think it's always better to be safe than sorry. So having them pulled out of the game, be evaluated, and then make a decision as to whether or not this is something that they can safely return to. So is it just a clinical diagnosis, or are you scanning the brain, for example? Yeah, great question. So it's a, it is a clinical diagnosis. There is not a, a standard CT, MRI, or X-ray that you can use to diagnose a concussion, and actually you, those should be entirely normal if you would do them. Um, so I think that if we are doing a CT or an MRI or some other fancy imaging study, it would be primarily 
out of worry for something more severe. So a bleed in the brain, um, a skull fracture, or something else. And so, yep, this is a clinical diagnosis based off of, again, the history, the exam, um, and all their findings to make that uh, kind of a decision. And professional players have a baseline done before they begin to compete. High school athletes now are having baseline done so that when they would suffer a blow to the head or something, then you do have something to compare it against. Should everyone have some sort of baseline done for their brain function? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a tough question. Um, so the question would be, you know, how, not only should you do it, but how frequently? So, you know, imagining mm-hmm. what the baseline function of a five-year-old is versus the baseline function of a 10-year-old is, that changes a lot over right. time. And so, you know, how frequently would you have to repeat it to make it even a reliable test? Because, you know, taking a kid on their baseline in August when their brain's been on vacation for two months versus a kid in January when they're kind of peak in the middle of the school year, they've been really learning out their brains functioning at a high level, there's a big difference there, wow. um, let alone just a natural progression of aging. So I think baseline testing can be valuable um, because it lets you know where they're normally functioning. If they have a concussion, you can make sure that they're back to their baseline before they return. But I don't think it's as simple as saying everyone should get baseline testing because, again, uh, it's just one of the many things that we use to help make decisions about whether or not you may have had a concussion. So if you have a concussion, then what should you do? And then when do you determine you're ready to get back out there and play? Ah, that's a million dollar question. I yeah. Bet. <laughs> yeah. So I think that um, there are state laws that kind of govern that if a player is suspected of having a concussion in any sport or any organized activity, that they'd be removed and evaluated by a medical professional with some training and evaluation of concussion. All coaches who coach organized sport, including soccer, are required to take online modules or education so they can be more aware of what a concussion might look like and then um, taking them out. And I think that the general motto that we use is when in doubt, take them out. Um, and then once they're evaluated, then they can make decisions about, is this a concussion, yes or no? Um, and, and if it isn't, then great. Then we'll safely get you back into sport. But if it is a concussion, then we really got to make sure that we wait for your symptoms to resolve, provide support in school and in sports um, to make sure that you know we're not doing things that make you worse. And then when you do seem like you recovered, gradually, sequentially work you back into sports um, over a period of time to make sure that you're safe to do so. And finally, what, do you, what if that happens too quickly? What if you go back to activities before the concussion is fu- fully healed? Yeah, so there's a lot of concerns about that. Uh, one of which is a probably rare um, and maybe even a little controversial is something called second impact syndrome, where someone would return to play really quickly, um, have sustained maybe an additional blow or two or more, and then ultimately that can result in massive dysregulation of the brain, ultimately even brain swelling, possibly even death. That's, again, very rare, but the most concerning complication of returning too soon. Um, but probably the more common thing that I see is that people return or um, too soon or never even come out of the game is that they actually have prolonged recovery. So instead of missing one or two games, they're missing three, four, or five. And we also think that it's important, just like with any injury, that you try to make sure you recover before you go back to try to avoid, again, long-term types of problems. So I think that, again, it's, uh, there's many reasons to try to avoid going back um, too soon, and studies would support that as well. What are the long-term concerns if one just ignores this and, and just keeps playing? Yeah, I think we still have a lot to learn about that, obviously. We don't know the magic number of concussions you need to have to result in some of these long-term concerns that the media is talking about. I think the, the, the condition that's most talked about is chronic traumatic encephalopathy that gets a lot of the media attention. There was a concussion movie uh, made, I think, last December about mm-hmm. this. And so I, I definitely think that those concerns are legitimate concerns, um, absolutely something we need to investigate. But I, I don't really, I can't tell a, a, a father or a child, say, if you have two, three, four, five concussions, that this is when we should start worrying about that. I think you treat each individual as an individual, and you make decisions to kind of make sure that 
they're safely returning after they've recovered. Because I think that most of the problems, I would assume, are a result of kind of people that are compounding injuries, never allowing recovery. There's probably some also genetic factors at play that mm-hmm. we still have to investigate um, as well. We've been talking about concussions with pediatric sports medicine expert, Dr. David Soma. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Soma. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.